Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Comments or opinions that I share today are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and recently retired from Metropolitan State University in the School of Social Work. And I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group and Counter Stories producer. Our typical um, co-host here, our colleague Anthony Galloway, is unable to join us, but we have two fabulous guests in his stead uh, to share their comments and their viewpoints with us uh, during this segment. I would invite Karina first to introduce yourself, tell us about yourself, your position, your organization, um, and then we'll move forward from that. Karina? Yeah, boujou everyone. My name is Karina Berry. I am Leech Lake Anishinaabe, calling in from Minneapolis in uh, Minnesota. And I um, am the managing director of Endian Action with Endian Collective. Endian Collective is an indigenous-led nonprofit um, that's dedicated to building indigenous power through organizing and activism, philanthropy, grant making, capacity building and narrative change. And the team that I manage, um, Indian Action, is the entity where we are doing the grassroots organizing, policy advocacy and direct action. Um, Prior to joining Indian Collective, I spent many years as a social worker working in the area of Indian child welfare um, and supporting our youth, our women and families through the, the child welfare system. Um, and through that experience, um, you know, in many ways have um, supported our, our women, our girls, our two-spirit relatives um, through, you know, really, um, you know, violent um, and other um, extractive experiences really directly, directly connected to this topic that we're going to talk about today. Um, but yeah, that's, that's me. Karina, thank you. And I just, uh, before we move forward, want to invite you to define two-spirit. Uh, we have used that term before in our podcast, but for listeners who are new to our content, can you briefly describe for our audience what you mean by that? Yeah, so in, um, in many of our Indigenous communities, we might, we'll refer, when we're referring to our LGBTQ plus community, we acknowledge our, our two-spirit relatives that, that carry with them both that, that male, that female, um, that spirit. And, and so through, you know, my, my language and, um, and when speaking around, um, LGBTQ issues or anything, you know, really try to honor and bring them into that space. And we often see in the MMIW, um, realm, um, you see the shift over time where we're trying to adapt and, and shift that language to be more inclusive. Um, and so, I'll often try to, you know, say missing and murdered indigenous relatives um, and and to also make sure we're including our two-spirit relatives um, within that conversation as well. Thank you, Karina. It's such a beautiful way to refer to our LGBTQ plus community. It's a real model for the rest of society to follow, actually. I'm going to turn over now to Marissa. Um, Marissa, we haven't met yet, but I am so pleased. We're all so pleased to have you here uh, with us today. Please uh, tell us what your role is and what you do and a little bit about yourself as we move forward. Yes, Eonia. I'm a teura wangle da tite ura. Um, umaha yuraje wui ta teimia kanda te sindawa ubli, shtasanda nikashi gua ubli, wasisige te Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. So, um, my, um, I use my language to introduce myself because that's my core identity. Um, my name is Mia Kanda. I belong to the Buffalo Tail Clan of the Sky People. I am Umaha, which are people that were also historically in these territories that we're in right now in Minneapolis. Um, and uh, my English name is Marissa Cummings, and I am the uh, CEO of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center here in the Phillips neighborhood on the south side of Minneapolis. Um, prior to my appointment, I came here about a year ago, um, a little over a year ago now. And, um, at the time I came here, there was the second wall encampment that was happening. Um, and so MIWRC took a, a role in really ensuring that, uh, relatives are protected and, and cared for, 
Um, and it was a very eye-opening experience for me. Prior to that, I worked at the University of South Dakota as the Director of Native Student Services, and I've also served as the Chief of Tribal Operations for my tribe. So I oversaw all of our tribal operations, um, including our health healthcare center. So that's a little bit about me. I'm a mom. I'm an auntie. I'm going to be a grandma here soon um, and just do my best to um, represent my family and myself as best as I can. So we thank you. Thank you, Marissa. Uh, you have an incredible position in our community. Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center is an organization near and dear to many of our hearts, including myself. Uh, and your predecessors have done an amazing job. And, and I hear that you are taking it to the next level. So more to come uh, with regard to all the work that you're doing. And maybe we can do a segment just on that in the future. Today's theme is going to be uh, reviewing actually something that's been in the news pretty much 24-7, so to speak, which is the coverage around the disappearance of Gabby Petito. Uh, she's a 22-year-old uh, uh, woman um, who is identified as a van life blogger uh, and that more than half a billion TikTok users um, we're following her hashtag, reviewed her hashtag Gabby Petito since her disappearance and she, her body was recently found uh, by authorities and the hunt continues then I think for um, her perpetrator believed to be uh, her boyfriend as well, if I understand that to be correct. And what we want to really make sure our listeners understand is we are Saddened, of course, by all that has happened to her and her family, we are in no way diminishing the tragedy of this. But it really, as we as we are so consistent with counter stories in the past, we really want to contextualize this and and lift up the inconsistencies, the biases in the media, and the treatment uh, of a white centered narrative versus the rest of our community who continues to suffer with missing and murdered members of our own communities and how that doesn't receive any uh, media or very little media. This is not a new pattern. And as we talk on counter stories for years here, it is a pattern that we have seen the media engage in and therefore society for decades, if not centuries. And the most um, egregious, if you will, that comes to my mind goes back to 1996 and 1997 when John Benet Ramsey, who's a six-year-old uh, blonde hair, blue-eyed girl from Boulder, Colorado. She was a beauty queen, as you may remember. She was front and center on all the newscasts and on the front page of newspapers, above the fold, in color. And I distinctly remember being in an audit uh, for the then the Pioneer Press here in Minnesota with about 10 folks in community. They asked us to look at their newspaper for the month and give them feedback on bias or race equity issues. And I remember being in that debrief with the CEO and all of their C-suite and lead editors. And I pointed, and, and we're going on around the room and everyone is saying, no, you guys are doing great. And, and then it got to me after the 10th person. And I said, do we read the same newspaper? Because what I've been seeing is very different than what you just said. And what I lifted up at that point was the example of John Benet Ramsey, because at the same time that she was front and center, literally on the front cover of the newspaper, was this nine-year-old black girl who had been beaten. She had been sexually assaulted. She had uh, been left for dead after her assailant poured roach killer down her throat and left her for dead in the stairwell of Cabrini Green in Chicago, which is, uh, was a, a housing project building. Um, and she she ended up being, as a result of her injuries, blind, mute, and crippled. And her story at that time was buried in the newspaper. It was like on page nine. 
It was a little bitty picture of her that you could barely see, not bigger than my thumbnail. And yet you had in the same newspaper, front and center, above the fold, in color, John Benet Ramsey's picture that must have taken half of the front page of that newspaper at that time. And I pointed that out and I said to the media at that point, look, you are responsible for this. You are by your coverage. You are telling Americans and your readers who is important and who is not important, whose life matters and whose life doesn't matter. And this is long before the BLM Black Lives Matter movement really initiated. So I, I ask you to just take yourself back to that and think about critically how many times that has happened in print media, in radio, and in television media, where the lives of BIPOC women, children, and men and boys are minimized or erased altogether. And when we look about um, the current day and, and the statistics that I am aware of, on average, missing Indigenous women get 27 times less media coverage versus white women. So I'm going to stop with that. I mean, I have examples of other folks that have been missing just this year whose, whose story has not yet been covered by the news. And instead, family members are grappling and hoping that they can bring this up now that this uh, the murder of Gabby Petito is so, so prevalent. So I'm going to turn it over then. Uh, let's start maybe with our guests to weigh in on what's on your mind. What comes up with this segment here with the focus that we are taking on today? This is Karina. Just kind of like the initial reaction, but honestly what felt like trauma and trigger in the body of, you know, seeing, seeing this media, um, unfold and just a continuing, you know, you log on to Facebook and it's there, it's everywhere. You log on to Instagram, it's there. I turn on the news, it's on CNN and it's in every place I can, um, that I can't get away of, uh, get away from, so to speak. Um, and that, um, in that vast coverage, you know, it's doing what we typically see with, for, for white women, um, especially like really holding her in high regard and all of these positive things. Um, and then also with her, her white partner, um, really giving him a lot of grace, um, which we, we don't, we see the opposite for, for men of color, indigenous men covered in media, you know, when she'd gone missing, um, in the way the media would just kind of say like, Oh, um, they went on this trip together. And he came home without her. And that's weird, you know, and it's just like, okay, you know, like how would have this been spun and what would that narrative have looked like if, if that, if it wasn't a white man at the center of it. And so there's the layers of that in like the language and the narrative that were really frustrating. Um, but there's also, yeah, this, the reality of the complete lack of coverage, um, for indigenous women, for our two spirit relatives, for other, for black women, other women of color. Um, and what I thought of right away and why I say that that trauma was felt is I, I thought of my cousin Becky, Rebecca Anderson. She, she was murdered back in 2015, right here in South Minneapolis, um, right off of Lake Street, 12th and Lake Street. And, um, I just remember in that moment, like watching all this media, I thought of her and I remember us as a family kind of scrambling, um, with no answers, you know, like she had been, um, found in an alley, um, beaten, you know, nearly to death. She'd been in a coma for two months after she was discovered and, um, before ultimately passing away. But there were so many unanswered questions that her mother had, my auntie, her sisters, my cousins, our, our whole family around like, what happened? And what do we do? Like, who do we contact? And just remembering that, um, us trying to figure out how to Facebook message journalists, how, how to like really, um, push for some media coverage because it wasn't being covered at all. And how also to name with this, like the lack of police response and engagement for her case, you know, like that, um, our, our, my auntie just, again, she didn't have any, any answers to the many questions she had. Um, it didn't, it was very evident that, um, 
because of my my cousin being an indigenous woman, like that she wasn't getting the same treatment or the same response or care within her case immediately. And, um, and so all of that, you know, is just like really, I think, triggering and that we see happen over and over again. And of course, with Gabby Petito and her family, like being human, you know, my own values and beliefs, like, uh, you know, it's very sad and it, and it is very, um, disturbing, you know, to see her this, this unfold on in, you know, front of our faces and, and to hear of her passing. And I send many prayers to her family as they, you know, like they navigate this loss and, and the grief that will remain. Um, but I'm really thankful for you all for creating this space. Um, to talk more about this. Um, I think for, for a native community, like we have our, we have our own, like, right. Even online, like our own little network and community. And so you see us talking about it. Mm -hmm. You see it on our threads. You see it within our community, like people sharing these articles, um, with frustration and saying the same thing. Like, why aren't our women? Why aren't our girls? Why aren't our relatives getting the same coverage? Um, but also really uplifting the data that's really missing um, and always missing in, in any coverage we have too around the number of women that are missing. And I'm sure many have seen the insider article where I think it was naming like 710 missing indigenous women in um, the same state that Gabby went missing in just in the last uh, like decade, um, you know, unsolved cases. And that should like, that should be alarming to everybody, you know, like that's, that is like, just the the feeling we feel in our hearts and our bodies, um, you know, knowing that this is happening in our communities, but it's just like, why, why isn't this uh, of a, the same importance to like mainstream media? Um, but I'm talking a lot and want to create space for Marissa to chime in too. So I'll stop there. Marissa, uh, feel free to chime in. Uh, Karina, I'm familiar with that article you mentioned. Uh, the state of Wyoming over the last decade, there have been 710 indigenous people, mostly girls, uh, and have not received the attention, the media attention, nor the investigation, as you said, by law enforcement. Um, very different than, than what's going on here. Uh, Marissa? Yeah, thank you. So um, this isn't surprising. Settler colonial violence is rooted in white supremacy. And gender-based violence, and while I agree um, that there definitely needs to be room for our relatives that identify on the spectrum of identity, which our people always have, um, I also know that our women have been specifically targeted since contact. And so I like to uplift our women and girls because we have been specifically targeted. We have been sex trafficked since contact. Um, even though Columbus never touched on what is now known as the United States of America, uh, Columbus's journals and those of his colleagues talk about getting girls as young as nine years old and trafficking them. And so this isn't something we're making up. This is something that's in historical documents. And so we know that there's always been an erasure of the original people of this land and our women as being um, oftentimes the backbone of our communities um, the ones who carry life forward, the ones who bring life into the world, of course, we're going to be targeted to erase ourselves or erase us from, um, from this land. And so it's not surprising to me. I grew up knowing about anime Aquash. I grew up knowing about Terry McCauley in Sioux City, who was murdered by a white man. Um, I grew up, uh, as time goes on, we just, it becomes normalized in our community and it's always exposure and it's always they were drunk or they were high or it's always like re-victimizing the family by talking about um, an addiction or the use of alcohol or drugs, right? But we also know that our people have been directly targeted through generations now um, for violence in many forms you know, through the United States policies that they've instituted and enforced in our communities while removing our ceremonial ways of life, while removing our language, while sending our children to boarding schools, while taking our children and putting them into um, non-Native homes. And so we have been targeted for genocide since contact. And this is not um, a surprise to me that we, this is a continuation. It is nothing new. Um, 
And it's something that enforces the settler colonial government, which is rooted in white supremacy. So until we're ready to address these systems at play and call these systems out for the erasure of our people, the erasure of our voice, um, the inequities that exist in um, as exactly as Karina said, from the time that the police are contacted for a search, um, we have to do those searches. And our aunties and grandmas have been doing these searches for years. You know, our aunties and grandmas ran DV shelters. Those were called their homes, you know, because they had to be the resources in our community because those resources weren't there for our women. And now it's a continuation of this work. And while MMIW or MMIR is coming to the, the surface more, there are still huge gaps in how our, our relatives and our people are treated. And that's clear as day in the encampments that are here on the South side right now in the, in the neighborhoods. And we know that our women are being trafficked in those spaces. Um, and we know that 80% of trafficking is also homegrown. And so there's so many elements to this and there's so many um, ways that it needs to be approached, but we know that our people have the answers and our community has the answers. If we go talk to community members here on the South side, they'll tell you what the answers are, but they don't have the power or access to power and access to systems for people to listen to them so that those answers can actually be put into real social change. So um, I know I, I kind of went off a little bit. Um, it's all related. It's all related, right? Yeah, it's absolutely all related. And it's the erasure of our women's voices specifically, even within our communities by our men, is evident. And so there has to be space for us to talk about the interconnectedness of all of these colonial systems that have led our people were not a deficit model. We can't look at like, oh, all these social issues exist in the native community. They have higher addiction, higher heart attacks, higher diabetes. We have those because of US policy, because of specifically targeted and strategic laws that were put into place to take away our way of life and replace it with this colonial system to immerse us into American society and of the settler state, right? But what we've done is we've resisted and we've held on to those ways. And so one thing that I know is he, I look to healing in our community. I had to go through that healing personally. Um, and it took, I'm still on that, it's, it's a journey. It is not a destination, but I'm, I'm still on that journey uh, myself. But when I healed, I had to heal all those that went before me too. And I look at my grandmother being the product of a boarding school and then being um, relocated to Sioux City. And all those native women that would hang out, Franklin Avenue was called R4 Street in Sioux City where I grew up. And all those native women that had to do sex work just to survive. Or all those native women that had to um, have relationships with these wealthy white men just to survive. That's a reality. And we didn't call that, you know, anything back then. It was always blaming them for what was happening, but they were trying to survive. And so I, there has to be a way that even we as a community heal from that collectively and then also start healing these future generations. And that is a whole system change in how we view even behavioral and mental health. We're using this European system of behavioral and mental health that requires us to do billable services through an IHS system or through the state. And those systems have not worked for us for 100 years. And we're in a worse place now than we were 50 years ago and 100 years ago. So how about we pay our own people to do the healing that we know works through our ceremonies, through our, our, our drums, through our singing, through our connection to creation. Let us heal ourselves, but give us the resources to do it ourselves. That's empowerment, that's equity. Marissa, I want to, before we move on to um, our other co-host here, I want to just clarify, when you said DV shelter in your statement earlier, uh, that refers to a domestic violence shelter, correct? Right, and when I say it, it wasn't technically a domestic violence shelter, it was, right. it was one of our grandma's homes. Grandma. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and thank you for calling out the systemic uh, racism 
we talk about that so many, uh, just so often, almost every segment, because in order to get to change, you need systemic change. You know, it can't be the superficial approach. And as you said, the indigenous community is not a, a deficit-based model. It is an asset-based model. I mean, there's so much there to learn from. Um, and I think, <laughs> quite honestly, that's what um, just a lot of folks fear, right? Those in power, they fear that that they will lose their control, quote unquote, if, if we allow that shift to happen. I'm going to invite some my other co-hosts to, to chime in. You know, um, I just like, I feel like there's just so many issues and I can't like everything that you guys said and then all the things that I'm thinking of as, as a media person, you know, I mean, there's just, there's so much, everything is related and there's so much to it. I mean, I, honestly, when I heard, oh, this guy and his girlfriend went on vacation, like on a road trip and he came home without her. I was like, whoa, that's really crazy. Like that sensationalism is like what sells, right? So I I understand that because I do think it's crazy. And I think because people are obsessed with True crime, true crime podcasts, true crime documentaries, binge watching it on Netflix. It's it's such a thing now, right? Everybody loves this kind of whodunit. But then it just became overwhelming. I mean, just the constant, like you were saying, I mean, it's on social media. Every It's on the news. Every time I turn something on, I hear about this beautiful blonde girl right who's gone missing and she's this influencer or whatever um and now i just read that they're sending in an underwater dive team to try to find the fiance or the boyfriend like that's not even the they found the body look at the resources that they're putting in to find this one man when Dozens, hundreds, thousands of women of color go missing and they're not sending out dive teams. They're sending out a dive team to look for the dude. Like, I can't even grasp my mind around just like, I feel like, is this what our tax dollars go to, right? To to pay for them to search for this man. And, and the other thing I think as far as media goes is just the 24-hour news channels, right? They're always trying to get content. They're looking for content, whatever to get people to watch their their shows. And I, I ha- I've always had this issue with 24-hour news because they start to, um, they really, you really show, you can see what their preferences are based on the amount of time that they spend on this issue or that issue or this story or that story or this incident. And the other thing that I'll just throw in here, not particularly media related, um, but just this discussion about like domestic violence in the white community. And when then when they talk about our communities, it's like, oh, that's just how they are. Like, oh, Hmong men just abuse women. Like I hear that so much like, oh, it's isn't that like your culture? You know, to do that kind of stuff. And it's like, no. And so w- when it's like, you know, when, when somebody from our communities is, is murdered or goes, or, or goes missing, it's always just like, oh, well, you know, it's within their community, right? The black on black crime that they, people talk about, like, oh, that's, that's their community and that's just what they do. But when it happens to a white couple, domestic violence in these situations, it's like, oh, it was so random and nobody could have seen it coming. And he's such a great guy that we couldn't have seen this happen. But we don't get that same coverage. Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's still related to the media part, but I mean, there's just so much. And then with everything that you guys have said as well, it's just like, I'm over here nodding, like, uh, uh-huh, exactly. Like, I remember this from when I was young, John Monet Ramsey, you know, and just, I sometimes worry because, you know, it's the missing white woman syndrome, right? But I, I, I often worry, like, if I go missing, you know, is my picture going to be bl- blasted everywhere? Are people going to come looking for me? I'm a chubby Asian girl. Like, you know, who wants to see that on your front page when you can have a beauty queen or an influencer? That, yeah, that, yeah, I just can't on that one. I, that opens up yet another Pandora's box about uh, how society defines beauty and, and again, centralizes white right is that you've got to be blonde hair blue eye and thin to be beautiful which is 
substantially different than the rest of what our communities view as beauty. Uh, Don, what do you? What's on your mind? Well, there's. I mean, Karina and and Marissa. I think in the you know their five ten minute explanations of uh, talking about what they do and and their experience have covered. I think uh, many of the topics that we have covered in the past seven eight years. Uh, whenever I bring up issues that concern the indigenous community, and um, I mean they have unpacked so much in their comments that I'm, you know, I'm I, I was sitting here listening to to Marissa talk and and um and it's it's traumatic for for us as 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 Indian people. I mean, she's talking, and my mind immediately goes back to when I was about. 12, 13 years old, and my uh, cousin moved down from the Mille Lacs Indian Reservation, moved in with us, was with us for three days, and then they found her body on the railroad tracks. We lived in North Minneapolis at the time, and they found her body in the railroad tracks in, in St. Paul. She was last seen at a bar with two white men, and that was it. There was nothing ever done those they those two white guys just kind of faded into the sunset um and there was nothing ever done about her murder um that has stayed with me my entire life i mean um you know here's a cousin that just moved to the city and she wasn't here longer than 3 days and she was murdered in st paul I think many of us have personal personal stories that we can relate to this. I mean, there are often, how many times have I talked about um, in our podcast Encounter Stories where, you know, we're invisible. The, you know, and, and, and it's, and, and at times, there are times where I don't like to bring up stuff because I think sometimes people interpret it the wrong way. Like it's us against them, and and that's not what it is. It's it's not us against Black Lives Matter or any other group. But I'll point out the fact that that we are Native people are killed at a higher rate than Black people are killed by white folks in this country. The problem is is that it's never covered. It's it's not even a blip on a police report in the newspaper. I mean, so. These discrepancies exist. It's exactly what Marissa and Karina said that, you know, there's been this total erasure of us as a people and our resiliency to fight through and survive. But every time I turn around, there's something traumatic. I mean, so so while this is happening and my react gut reaction was the same, and again, we're not taken away from the experience that this young lady unfortunately had to experience. But it's the it it's the difference in that coverage. We ask just for a little bit of that to help us find our missing relatives. And then you throw on the traumatic event of finding dead children buried in boarding schools, which we've talked about on a couple of other of our podcasts. And and that raises issues and and and, and thing. And so, you know, last night on Channel 5. Um, KSTP did a story on Minnesota's forgotten history, and they had a little piece. They talked about uh, the boarding school here in, in, in Minnesota, uh, Pipestone, which was just one of many. But they included Pipestone, and they and they also talked about uh, the boarding school in Flandreau, South Dakota, in this piece. Well, that was traumatic, not traumatic, but that brings up that connection because my mother was sent to both of those boarding schools. She started at Pipestone, and then from Pipestone, she got sent to Flandreau. And my mother was in both of those institutions. And what makes that, what, what makes that so, so unique is that, is that um, when I was, I had a similar position like Marissa did with her tribe, except I was with the Mille Lacs Band where I'm enrolled, and I was Commissioner of Health and Human Services. And um, we actually had someone come in and, and kind of do a healing thing 
for some of our elders who who were part of that generation who who were sent to boarding schools. And um, my mother had a uh, she shared with me you know, her her reaction was 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 unique in the fact that she she didn't feel she had a bad experience at the boarding school that it wasn't that bad for her. But when she retired and re- and moved back, because during a relocation is how she ended up down here in, in Minneapolis, living with some of her other uh, girlfriends from the reservation down here in the city. Uh, but when she moved back to the res, we would, you know, and then she started reconnecting because Ojibwe was her first, was her first language. And um, but she had lost a lot of that raising us here in the city. Um, she started to reconnect. Then I think that's when it finally began. She finally began to realize that the boarding school accomplished what it was set up to do, which was to remove that language, remove those cultural ties, and. And so while she thought her experience wasn't that bad, we as her children could see when we would ask her to teach us how to speak the language, she would tell us, no, you had to learn English. And to me, that was a direct result of the boarding school and its success. And so I'm, I know I'm, I, but I'm just saying it, this conversation brings all of that stuff up for us in terms of how, as a community, we we are all survivors of all this uh, federal policy and programs that were put in place to assimilate us, essentially to get rid of us. I mean, we have blood quantum as a means just to so that we procreate ourselves out of existence. And I I just want to intervene in there a little bit. I think everything that you're saying, Donald, and I think that the reason that's important is because it's always about access to land. It is always when dealing with the indigenous community about access to land and resources. And so the more that they can eliminate us through either blood quantum or through boarding schools or through assimilationist policies, um, you always know who's not really human in a settler colonial state because they actually have to create laws to make them human. And if you look at US federal policy and our people, they have to create laws to allow us to practice our religion. They have to create laws to allow us to keep our children. That's how you know that we weren't human, right? And so when we look at how those policies have created even internalized racism and how we feel about ourselves, right? How we view what is beautiful in our community now, how we're decolonizing or deconstructing these settler colonial ideas to to take our way of life back. Um, My grandmother was a boarding school survivor as well, and she was actually like my mother. And um, she raised me. I went home and took care of her until she passed. And she would always want me to pass. Don't ever make yourself, don't let anyone know you're Indian. Don't dress Indian. And of course, I'm the exact opposite. But in her mind, it was protecting me from violence. If nobody knew I was Indian, if I didn't wear anything that would easily identify me as a a Native woman. Um, And so there was fear that controlled everything about that generation and how they operated. My grandmother was also a first language speaker. And one of the women that that does our language now, our grandmothers, she told me, me and your grandma didn't even know each other spoke Omaha because when we got in the bus every day to go to school, we knew we couldn't speak because the social workers would come in and remove our children because they spoke our language. And so all of this is integral into the pain, into the trauma of our community, and then why our community has a disparity when it comes to things like um, ways of trying to survive, right? And then those disparities are used against us and our lives are even less valued when it comes to systems like judicial systems or police systems that are be- supposed to be the ones to protect us and instead are taking our lives or just throwing our lives out the window. So I think it's really important that 
we look at that whole spectrum when it comes to indigenous people because we are different than any other group of people in this country because we are the original people of this land. I think it's so interesting what you guys are saying and how, you know, we started this topic. We started this show talking about some missing white girl in Wyoming and and how we got here. And it's just like, it brings, uh, you know, when these things happen, it brings up so, so many deeper things and generational historic trauma, right, for each of us every time we hear something like this that happens within our communities. And I don't think that people really even realize, I mean, people in mainstream media even realize that, right? Like whenever I hear about a Hmong sister who was abused or murdered or had kidnapped or whatever, I, you know, it brings up a lot for me. So I can imagine every time, you know, it brings up what it brings up for you guys and what you guys have just expressed right now and all the trauma that comes with it. One thing, Don, you said that really stuck with me was you said, we're just asking for coverage to find our missing relatives. And it's important to say that because it's not just that we want TV time. It's not that we want news. It's not that we want the attention on us. It's not that we're trying to take away from what happened to to, uh, Gabby Petito. It's that the media has that power to bring attention to these issues and help us to find our missing relatives and help us to address the systemic changes. But when they ignore those stories within our community and focus, hyper-focus on stories like, like what happened to Gabby, it it takes the attention away from trying to solve the crimes within our community. It's not that we're fighting or taking anything away from what happened to Gabby. And I just, I thought that was really, you know, just something to, to say again, <laughs> right? We're, we're not, we're not attention seekers, but we want the coverage because it's deeper than just being on TV. But we have to be really careful where energy goes, you know, as um, indigenous people, I know that, We are doing so much. My energy can go towards fighting these systems all the time. Or my energy can go on maintaining and teaching our way of life Mm -hmm. and healing our community. Mm -hmm. And we can do both. And and many of us do do both. But I, when I saw the whole thing that happened on the media, I don't have time for it. I'm trying to worry about what's happening down the street. And I'm trying to to do what I can to to change the lives for the people that I, I know and I'm close proximity to. I don't have time to worry about why the media is worrying about, you know, this white young woman, because it's not going to change anytime soon for us. My father was a journalist. You know, social media is how, as Karina said, like, that's how we keep in touch. I get social media messages on Facebook about somebody going missing here in the cities from somebody back home in Nebraska. Like, that's how it works for us. And so we do what we have to do to make sure our community is is going to be okay to the best of our ability. As far as these systems, I don't have time to fight every news station and ask why are you not doing what you're supposed to be doing? Because I know why. Marissa, I'm so glad that you and Don both uh, named just the systems. Again, every system is intrinsically designed to render the results it's intended to give, right? There's no accident. The system is not broken. The system was designed with that in mind. And both of you have raised the issue of being stripped of the language, much like my community, the Mexicans and other Spanish speaking countries where all of these English only laws have been passed and and perpetuated and of course uh, not upheld um, at some point in time, but all of these policies to strip us of our language and our culture is also part of that same pattern. Very much trying to strip us of our culture and trying to strip us of our identity to make us less than uh, what we are uh, intended to be. Corinna, I know you wanted to jump in as well. Yeah, no, and my mind is totally going to a million places, right, as this conversation is taking us. Because I think, you know, it, it it's really back to like um my mind was stuck in systems but also like Marissa was naming too of like um for our people and within our communities like we've had the 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 knowledge we've had the teachings we've had the resources 
since since the beginning, right? And so we're we're having to walk in these two worlds of every day, like actively fighting to dismantle these systems um, and educating within our own community on like how or why, how do we get there? You know, we're doing this work to fight, to like create that pathway or to reclaim spaces at the tables and, and these, these, these places we've been um, systematically left out of. Right. And so, so one, like wanting to really uplift, like, like Marissa and MIWRC and the advocates and all the like amazing people that are deep in our community every day, you know, like um, the ones that are providing um, like the true, like community led support, the, the support that's really grounded in our values, that's grounded in our teachings, that is always connected to ceremony. Um, you know, like that, that is so important and that's work that's happening all over and then also like there's so much work that are we've had you know we've we've lost ancestors who've been in this fight you know like for for ever um and i think of when i was thinking of systems one place that it kept bringing you know with don um and marissa also talking about like the boarding school right uh, boarding school era and that journey um, and then also like we often hear hear that and we hear people kind of go to historical trauma um, and really, um, really forget about like the present day, like the active trauma that's happening and really just wanting to name in this space, like the child welfare system is our modern, modern boarding, modern day boarding schools. Right. And so like, that's a huge piece in this too, that I just wanted to name that I know is not new to Marissa or Don or any of our like indigenous community members. Um, but that's like another area, even too in media that you'll see, kind of can be kind of ebbs and flows and can be this sensationalized topic, like the foster care system, um, you know, and, and the failings of it and the reform um, efforts, but still like we'll be missing from that narrative. Um, and we're overrepresented and dispro disproportionately represented in that system all across Turtle Island. Um, and right in Minnesota, we hold the worst disparities um, you know, for the removal of American Indian children from their homes. And what that's doing every day is perpetuating everything Marissa and Don have been talking about. It's disconnecting our, our kids from the, their homelands, from their families, from their people, from their languages, from their teachings, from their ceremonies, and continuing this cycle. Um, and so, like, that's another, to, like, what Marissa is saying is, like, within this, like, there's so many um, of people in our community and organizations like saying, you know, like one screw, like continuing to try to reform the system that is built on white supremacy, you know, like that's its roots. Um, like we can, we can do our advocacy. We can try, you know, we can advocate for policy change as we like continue to like navigate these harmful policies, but also like we're going to work on the solutions and the healings that our people have identified, that they have asked for, that they are leading over here. And so I think that's like, that's really important too. And of course, like you go back to media and like, rarely is that covered and or if it is, it's super problematic. And so that makes me think of just like media also, like we don't, I, I can't speak, I mean, it's not a monolith. And so I can't speak for every indigenous person, but many of us would kind of be like, eh, you know, like we don't need media in our community. And that's not completely true, right? Um, I think we have really, it's there's there's so much there around like relationship building and trust building, but also we have like really dope media makers within our own community that, you know, we should be spending more time and energy on. But that's kind of like my soapbox right now of trying to like, like others have said, there's so much here um, and just really like respect Marissa and, and Don and, and Luz and um, Healy, like your your words around all of these things because there's layers to this. Um and but what gives me hope, you know, is our own communities and our people, you know, and everything we wake up and we fight for and we stay grounded in every day. You know, we often have shared resources with our listeners so that they can become better informed and not only rely simply on the mainstream dominant news channels. Right. Which we know erase our people and our people, meaning indigenous black Latino, Asian, uh, American um, constituents, right? So if if we can take just two minutes to really just uh, refresh people's minds about how they can leverage and expand their own 
media awareness, whether it's social media or print or, you know, e-media, so that people can begin to open up their minds and see more coverage so that it's not just limited to what they see on dominant network news channels. We get um, news media contacting us about the encampments, but when it comes to us doing this work in the community that's meaningful for our people, nobody's reaching back out to us. And so we use Facebook, Facebook Live. That's how our people communicate. That's how we talk about what's happening on the street. Um, and I think it's really important that we have those spaces among each other um, to be able to share that information. Also, you know, our, our social media sites at MIWRC, we use and we also share other organizations. I have a lot of respect for NDN and all the work that comes out of NDN Collective. And so um, I really appreciate the work that they're doing to also use um, social media to show things that are happening all over um, all over our land here. So I, I just wanted to share that, you know, there is something positive and good and healing and beautiful coming out of this. Um, and I also want to share that many of us are, are survivors of the boarding schools and many of us have relatives that never made it home from Carlisle and didn't get any media attention. And it is what it is. We're ready to move forward. We're ready to have federal legislation that is supposed to come down through uh, Madam Secretary Holland and the Department of Interior to have an investigation on United States boarding schools and what happened there. Um, but after that investigation, we also want to see reparations for the damage that was done to our people. It's not enough to do a land acknowledgement. It's not enough to make a general statement. We need to start seeing some payment to our communities for the damage that was done so that we can start healing. And just to clarify for our listeners, MIWRC is Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center, and it's located in Minneapolis. Well, we are at our the end of our segment for today. And we are so appreciative of uh, both of your ability to come in and share your thoughts, your wisdom, and your counsel with us, uh, Karina and Marissa Cummings. This has been Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everybody else. My name is Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. Comments or opinions that I share today are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. Don Eubanks, associate at Dendros Group and a member of the Mwax Band of Ojibwe Indians. And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And I'm Karina Berry, managing director of Indian Action at Indian Collective. Marissa Cummings, uh, president and CEO of the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. Thank you once more. Uh, what a great conversation, uh, very difficult conversation in terms of just uh, reliving the traumatic moments that our guests have referenced, uh, prayers um, and healing energy to, to all, uh, including our listeners. This has been Counter Stories. We'll see you next time. This program is a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, Diverse Radio for Minnesota's Communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.